Now, please turn with me, if you would, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians tonight. Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be studying the first 14 verses together this evening. And as you're turning there, let me just say a few words by way of of introduction and, and orientation. Ephesians is one of those perennially applicable, perennially timely, perennially useful books of the Bible. Of course, that could be said of all God's word, no doubt, but certainly Ephesians fits the bill because it addresses, in particular, some areas where we as a church, and I mean this in the context of our wider North American society, are perhaps at our weakest in this particular moment. You know, many things in our day are, are, are way over-sensationalized beyond their actual significance I suspect many of you know that. And so when it comes to the church and our society, I'm not sure if we're facing a crisis, as some pronounce, so much as a crossroads. Maybe a little of both. Maybe it's a bit of a crossroads and a crisis, a blend. But the church is facing a serious situation, and it calls for a let's get serious response on our part, no doubt. But at the same time, I'm confident, because the word of God tells me so, that the church will persevere because her Lord will ensure it. She has faced monumental social challenges before, and surely she'll face them again until Christ returns. Nevertheless, so we want to have that that confidence in the power of Christ and how he will sustain and build his church. Nevertheless, the past several years have exposed some fault lines in the wider church. And I know in our congregation in Roanoke, we've been studying through Ephesians in a couple different settings and Bible studies and Sunday school and things like that. And we've been striving to shore up on those areas where we need it to give some serious thought. Uh, some of you might be familiar with the annual Ligonier Ministries State of Theology surveys. Uh, if you're not familiar with them, I encourage you to check them out. Uh, you will not at all be encouraged when you read these surveys, uh, but it, you will be given a reality check. Uh, it is shocking, absolutely shocking, what many self-professed Bible-believing evangelical folks believe. Uh, this survey gives, gives credence, or, or rather evidence, to the fact that so many so-called Bible-believing people believe that Jesus wasn't really divine or that there are multiple pathways to God. A lot of folks say they love Jesus, but the truth is they don't know very much about him. They don't believe in the Jesus as he comes to us in the Holy Scripture. And so as I take that in, and I'm thinking about that, and from at least my vantage point in the wider North American church, in my estimation, many issues boil down to a misunderstanding of two major doctrines. The doctrine of Christ on the one hand, and the doctrine of the church on the other hand. Now there's, there's dozens of problems, surely, and there's dozens of challenges and symptoms that we could and we should address, but really it seems that most of the issues in the North American church today come down to that. We don't grasp the doctrine of Christ we don't grasp the doctrine of the church as scripture presents it. And if we're going to face down the coming trials, if we're going to face down the coming hostilities, we're going to need one another. And we're going to need to understand our Savior. We're going to need to understand how we must function as the church, as God's gospel community together. And so as we look to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's a marvelous epistle that blends those things into six short chapters. Massively important teaching distilled for us in this letter on the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the church. So let's look to it now. Let's read it from God's word in Ephesians chapter 1, and then we'll pray and ask for his help and blessing as we study it together. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 1, we'll read through verse 14. This is God's holy word. Hear it. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. Thus far, God's word. Would you pray with me once again, friends? O Lord, truly, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church from this portion of your holy word. Grant us the ministry of the Holy Spirit this night. Come and illuminate for us these pages of scripture that we might see Christ shining on every page. Unstop our ears, open our eyes, Unfold our hearts that we may receive with gladness all that you have for us in this, your word. For we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians, as you know, is, is, is a beloved book of the Bible. It's beloved because it is so immensely rich and it's so immensely practical. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote it from prison in Rome, probably around the year 60 AD. He wrote it to the church in Ephesus and... Uh, in what is Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. And many scholars believe that this letter was likely copied and given out to new converts at their baptism. In many ways, the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, is like a basic handbook, like a manual of the Christian life, a handbook of the Christian life. The grand themes that we find for us in Ephesians are, are really that of new life, a new union with Christ, a new union with one another. New gospel community, if I can call it that. And if you look at verses 1 and 2, you see Paul's customary greeting. As he begins, he wants to remind his readers of his apostolic authority, that he speaks as one with the authority of Jesus Christ. Look with me in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Notice, this is, as, as one commentator puts it, this is not Pastor Paul's best advice for your life now. This is not ten tips for a better life and health. Quite the contrary, this is the word of God brought to you by Christ's own authorized ambassador and spokesman. Close quote. And so we see Paul's greeting there as he comes to them as a royal emissary of King Jesus with a message from the king to his subjects. And then in verses 3 through 14, 
after that, after that, that opening salutation, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 3 through 14, we have this absolutely extraordinary statement. Actually, and fascinatingly, in the original Greek, in verse, verses 3 through 14, is one long, single, complex sentence. As Paul the Apostle goes on and on and on and summarizes almost the entirety of, the, of Christian truth in these 12 verses. He almost covers the encyclopedia of the truth of the Christian faith in these 12 verses. One of my favorite views in all the world is standing atop a small mountain in Edinburgh, Scotland, called Arthur's Seat. I was just talking with Kurt Schmidt about this a few minutes ago as they are fresh back from Scotland with us. Maybe not fresh, maybe that's not the right word, but recently back to, with us from Scotland. And this mountain, as it exists in Edinburgh, is one of the greatest uh, viewpoints and vantage points that you can ascend, at least in my, in my opinion. It's an extinct volcano. It's called Arthur's Seat. It's about 500 feet above the city. And as you stand at the top and you survey the surroundings, you can look down and see the Queen's royal residence. When the Queen goes to Scotland and she's in residence, she's at Holyrood Palace there in the capital city of Edinburgh. And you can see that down on your right. And out in front of you is the sprawling old section of the medieval town, which is Edinburgh. And off in the distance, you can see the waters of the North Sea. And behind you and to the west, you can see the beginning of just a few mountains of the Scottish Highlands beginning to come into view, especially on a clear, sunny day. It's a stunning view high atop there. It's a bird's eye view of all of Edinburgh and the surrounding territory. And from there, you can see how all the surroundings are interconnected. All the streets and the fields and the streams and the bridges, how it's all grand and interwoven and captivating. And that's exactly what we have here is such a vista and such a vantage point in verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1. We have here a stunning bird's eye view of Emmanuel's land, of Emmanuel's country. Paul the Apostle is taking us up, soaring through the skies, and he's showing us the view from 30,000 feet. And he's saying, here's the land of God's grace. Here is the kingdom of his mercy. Take it all in. Look around you. See it grand and interwoven and captivating. Let it bowl you over with the immensity and the wonder of it all. And so, brothers and sisters, as we think about the salvation that our God works in his people, if I can borrow a helpful outline from another commentator that I read in studying for this passage, there are four main ideas regarding salvation that the Apostle Paul wants us to see here. Four main ideas, and we'll trace our sermon along these, these contours tonight. And the first idea is this. Salvation is for God's praise. Salvation is for God's praise. This is the basic thrust of the passage. The apostle is about to launch into this extraordinary description of God's redemption of his people. And even at the beginning, even at the cusp of it, he can hardly contain himself. You you, you almost see him breathless as he's about to to talk to us about all these things. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's just at the front end of what he's about to describe for us. As you consider, he's saying to the people, as you consider all that God has planned and all that he has done in order to redeem you, saints of Ephesus, you ought to worship. You ought to worship. The goal of God, the the telos, if you like, the, the end game, if you will, for which Paul is aiming is praise and honor for his own name. 
That's his great goal and agenda, the praise and honor of his own name. It's a theme, as you read through the the passage, it's a theme that's repeated at least three more times in these verses. Look at verse 5, you see it there. We are predestined for adoption. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Or skip down to verse 12. Paul says that the, the first generation of those who trusted in Christ, they placed their hope in him so that they might be what? To the praise of his glory. Or down at the last verse, verse 14. We too, having been converted and sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, we enjoy all of these benefits and blessings to the praise of his glory. Right there at the end of verse 14. Why does God do all this? What is God's grand design in the salvation of sinners? You see, brothers and sisters, all that God does, all that he does is for the praise of his name. I love how one man puts it. He says it like this. The goal of God is the glory of God and the worship of his people, saved from every tribe and language and nation under heaven. Our salvation isn't the end. It's the means to a greater end. And that end is worship. Close quote. Which, by the way, as we ponder that truth, that should tell us something about how we ought to use the beautiful truths that we're pondering here. These are rock-solid, iron-clad, strong and glorious truths. These are brilliant Brilliant as gold and as strong as steel. This is the kind of theology that you want, I trust. This is the kind of theology that you want with you in the howling storm of persecution. When When the days come, if and when they do come, we are staring down hostilities. And we're staring those hostilities down in the eye. These are the kinds of theological truths. These are the kinds of doctrines that you want with you in your back pocket as you step in to that madness. You want to pack this theology with you, this strong theology of a strong Savior, because it's, going to, it's the kind of theology that's going to carry you from cradle to glory. Right? The thing about iron and steel, the thing about heavy and durable metals, though, is that they can be fashioned either into a useful tool or a bludgeoning club if we're not careful. And see, here's the thing. Right? We're Reformed. We're Calvinists. We, we love the doctrine and theology of the scriptures. We love it because it is life-giving. But we, sometimes we can become rather, shall I say, passionate, enthusiastic when others don't see these truths as we do. And this is one of the key texts to which we often turn when we wish to demonstrate the biblical teaching on the doctrine of election and predestination. This is a key passage for those kinds of argumentations. But let's remember, brothers and sisters, that this passage is not primarily a theological cudgel by which to pounce on and beat down poor, unsuspecting Arminians. If you see an Arminian walking down the street and you're a, a, a covert Calvinist hiding around the corner, please don't jump out around the corner and beat him over the head with Ephesians chapter 1. That's not the immediate primary purpose for which this passage was given. Right? We do use passages like this to express doctrine. We do use passages like this to substantiate our assertions and perhaps explore disagreements together. We do take people to this passage to prove the theology of the scriptures. But for the Apostle Paul, what is the primary? There are secondary purposes. There are tertiary purposes. But what is the primary purpose of the truth which he expounds here? It is fuel for praise. It is fuel for praise. 
The truth in this text should ignite and swell adoration in the hearts of all who study it. Let me put it to you this way. If our grasp of the doctrine of election makes us into a cantankerous theological bickerer, I dare say perhaps we have not begun to grasp its significance. There's a place for debate. There's there's a place for passionate defense of the truth. There's a place for apologetics, absolutely. But as Calvinists, as those who prioritize grace, may I suggest that we ought to be among the most gracious people in all the earth. Theologically rock-solid and biblically ironclad, yes, absolutely. But gracious. We live in the age of false dichotomy. It's something I'll talk about frequently. We live in the age of false dichotomy. And I want to encourage you, dear brothers and sisters, to not buy into that false dichotomy. Are you people who value truth and robust doctrine, or are you people who value graciousness? And the answer is yes. It's not an either-or. It's a both-and. Doctrine is for doxology. Doctrine is for doxology. That's what it does in the heart and in the mind of the Apostle Paul, and that's what it ought to do in ours, friends. The end goal of salvation, the end goal of God's glorious grace toward us sinners is always toward the praise of our almighty and sovereign and saving Lord. It should fill our hearts and fill our minds with swelling confidence, and it should drive us to our knees, prostrate in adoration. So that's the first thing for us to see, that salvation is for God's praise. But then secondly, I want us to see that salvation is in Christ. Salvation is in Christ. That is to say, salvation is focused on and centered in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3 again. Every spiritual blessing is ours. Where? Are there any spiritual blessings to be found anywhere, anywhere in the world, other than in Jesus Christ? Are there any blessings to be found beyond him or outside of him, Paul? No. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. Verse 3. We are chosen and predestined in Christ. Verse 4 and verse 5. Verse 6. The glorious grace with which we have been blessed is ours in Christ. Verse 7. Redemption by the cross is ours in him. God's purpose is set forth in Christ. Verse 9. And one day all things will be united together. The fall and all of its wretchedness will be undone. The wretched effects of Adam's sin removed forever. No more enmity. Heaven and earth brought together again. And it will all be done, verse 10, in Christ. Verses 9 and 10. We obtain an inheritance in Christ, verse 11. We hope in Christ, verse 12. We are sealed with the Spirit in Christ, verse 13. You get the point. I hope you do, Paul says to us. Perhaps the greatest theme of this passage is union with Christ. We are united to Christ in eternity when God elects a people whom he shall save. And we are united to Christ at the heart of history, weren't we? Aren't we? When we were crucified with Christ at Calvary as our representative, as he, our substitute, bore our sins in his body on the tree. And we are united to Christ in real time when we are converted and we believe the gospel and the Holy Spirit made us alive, regenerated our hearts and 
granted us faith and repentance and we were united to him by faith. And we will be united to Christ in consummation, in glory, forever, to enjoy unbroken fellowship with him in the fullness of time. And friends, what a wonderful corrective this is. What a wonderful corrective this is. I say that because how often, how often have we seen this thought pattern in the North American church? Maybe you've experienced it. Maybe you've been there. I have a problem, I have a challenge, and so I need Jesus for my problem. He'll fix it. He'll make it go away. And when I have X, whatever X is, whether it's a a circumstantial outcome or, or a material possession that you need, whatever. When I have X, which Jesus helps me obtain, then I'll be better. Jesus then, in that kind of equation, in that kind of thought process, Jesus then becomes merely a means to an end. Maybe we ourselves have fallen into that line of thinking. The Apostle Paul wants to change the way we think so that Jesus is not a tool to another end, but rather that Jesus is the center and the sum of our whole Christian lives. Brothers and sisters, what you get in the gospel is Christ himself, clothed in all of his benefits. God is the gospel. You may have heard it said, Christ is the gospel. In the gospel, you get Christ himself. Not merely some list of perks and benefits, like a, like a Capital One credit card that you can use within cash in your airline miles. No. Christ is the beginning and the end. He is the sum and substance of our Christian lives. We don't merely use Christ to get the end result we want. Christ is the end result we want. And Paul wants to fill our vision with views of the immensity of the Lord Jesus Christ so that our hearts would be given over to adoring praise. There is no blessing to be had and there is absolutely no benefit to be enjoyed outside of Christ Jesus. I defy you to find it, the Apostle Paul says. You can't. Brothers and sisters, may it never be. May it never be that we live for a mere tool to use. Money, a job, influence, take your pick. These, are all, these can all be good things. These are all not inherently bad things when used rightly. These can all be very good things. But they are means, right? They are means used to accomplish something greater. They are not, in an, they are not an end in themselves. Brothers and sisters, we dare not live for a, a tool that we can use But we absolutely must live for a Savior who gives himself for us. So embrace him. Embrace him. In the gospel, you get Christ himself, clothed in all of his glorious benefits. And those benefits we're going to talk about in just a moment as they're cataloged here for us in these glorious 12 verses. So that's the second thing. First, we saw salvation is for God's praise and then we see salvation is in Christ. There's no blessing or benefit to be enjoyed outside of Christ. But then thirdly, we see here that salvation is by the Trinity. Salvation is by the Trinity. You probably picked up on it as you were reading through it. This is a profoundly Trinitarian text. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have their fingerprints all over this marvelous passage. Verses 3 through 6, we see there there's the focus on God the Father. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's the one in verse 3 who blessed us. He is the one in verse 4 who chose us. And we were predestined and chosen, verse 5, to be adopted as his son. And then as we 
Skip down to verses 7 through 10. Paul then focuses on the work of God the Son, the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Right? We have redemption through his blood, verse 7. The, the blood of the cross. Our, our forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins is secured by Christ Jesus at Calvary. And more than that, the Father's accomplishment in Christ, it goes beyond you and it goes beyond me, it goes beyond all of us, and it surrounds, it actually envelops all creation. And this, this plan of redemption which God has wrought will reunify a sin-wrecked world and a broken creation. God will, verse 10, unite all things together in Christ. This is the plan, this is the work of God's Son, of God the Son, And then in verses 11 through 14, the third portion of our passage, Paul goes further to show not only how our salvation is a work of God the Father and God the Son, but also a work of God the Holy Spirit. Paul reflects on his own conversion in verses 11 and 12, and the conversion of some of his countrymen, and then he reflects on the conversion of the Ephesian saints in verses 13 and 14. And he says that the whole experience of Christian conversion of, of being brought to know Jesus is, is topped off, if you like, by the Holy Spirit. He who is the guarantee, the seal of our inheritance. Right? In the, in, in the same way that an ancient king in ancient Near Eastern culture would affix his wax seal. He'd take his signet ring and he'd dip it in the hot wax and he'd fold up his letter or his scroll and he'd affix the wax seal with his emblem and his insignia on that document as a way to make good on his promise when he wrote you the letter. That's what that seal, that's what that emblem signified, and that's the weight that it carried. The deed was as good as done. You've got this letter with the sworn vow of the king, and he's sealed it with his own insignia. That The thing may not have been built yet, but it's as good as done, and you can go to the bank on that. You had his ensign and his seal and his sure word. So too is the Holy Spirit such a seal for us. We have an irrevocable guarantee, an irrevocable guarantee of the salvation and eventually the final redemption to which our Lord shall bring us. In the same way that the Father and the Son and the Spirit were all intimately and inextricably involved in in, in bringing Christ to earth, they were inextricably involved in the incarnation and Him living that perfect life on our behalf in His active ministry. And in triumphantly raising him from the grave on that blessed resurrection morning, even as all the persons of the Trinity are involved in all those aspects of the life and ministry and the person and work of Jesus, so too is the whole of the Trinity intimately involved in ordaining and working and accomplishing and securing your salvation and mine, brothers and sisters. And indeed, every single person of the Trinity is ushering us into the fellowship and the delight and the unending flow of love among the members of the Trinity itself as we delight and commune with our God. One man put it like this, the work of the Trinity is woven into the fabric of our Christian lives. The work of the Trinity is absolutely woven into the very fabric of our Christian lives. God has redeemed you, Christian believer. And he's rooted you into a new community of the church, and he has indeed anchored you by his indwelling Holy Spirit so that you might know something of the holy and eternal fellowshipping delight of the triune God himself. See the lengths to which 
God goes as Paul showcases it for us here, as he puts it on glorious and full display. See the lengths to which God goes, the power, the the work, the, the love of every member of the triune God, the Father in electing you in ages past and sending you his Son to purchase a people's forgiveness. We see the work of the Son as he covenanted, as he willingly came into this world in humiliation, as he took on flesh, living the life that you ought to have lived and dying the death that you ought to have died, suffering and bleeding and dying at Calvary, and then rising again triumphantly and ascending to the right hand of the throne of heaven, and furthermore, sending his Spirit, that other comforter, to take away your heart of stone and to give you that heart of flesh and to draw you to himself, to dwell within your heart, sealing you as his own, to unite you to Christ, to guide you and sanctify you and make you like Christ all your days as you live and as you walk with him. And finally, at last, bringing you all the way home to glory. What a stunning thing is yours, child of God. What an absolutely stunning thing. What an absolutely stunning reality is yours, child of God. One commentator put it like this. He said, here's the length of God's mercy to pursue you and the fullness of God's power to redeem you and the depth of your belonging when God reclaims you. The length of God's mercy to pursue you, the fullness of God's power to redeem you and the depth of your belonging when God reclaims you. The triune God himself secures you, Christian believer, even you, even me, for all eternity. So, salvation is for God's praise. Salvation is in Christ. Salvation is by the Trinity. But then fourthly and finally, salvation is all-encompassing. Salvation is all-encompassing. Many times, now, now maybe it's not the, not the case in this congregation, but I, I know it's, it's probably the case in, in the wider North American church. Many times we tend to think of salvation, uh, when we utter that word salvation, folks tend to think of it in the category of the hour I first believed, to, to quote the hymn, Amazing Grace. We, we tend to think of justification, uh, that moment where I placed my faith in Christ and I was made right with God. I, w- I was made, I was put into a right standing before God, my creator. I was pardoned. And it's, that's not wrong to, to think of salvation in those terms, of course, but that's only one piece of a wider biblical picture. It's just one piece of a wider picture. We often think of it in terms of our conversion or our justification. But look at the picture that Paul paints here. He speaks of a salvation that began in eternity past. And it came sweeping into space-time history and it punctured history as Christ came into the world and lived and died and rose again. And then further, it had a real-time effect on you when you did believe, when you did come to that moment of conversion. And it doesn't stop there, but this salvation sweeps us onward. It carries us forward on into eternity future. It's an all-encompassing salvation rather than one that's pointedly or solely at just a moment. Notice how it all begins in the eternal purposes of God the Father. Look at verses 4 through 6. When were Christians chosen? Verse 4, before the foundation of the world. And what is God's goal in choosing and in predestinating Christians? Verse 4, he does it that we should be holy and blameless before him. Or, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption 
as sons. Now notice the order in which things happened. He didn't choose you because you were such a wonderful person. He didn't choose you because he foresaw that one day you would be good or you would be a wonderful person. Rather, he chose you that you might become righteous in him by his sovereign and ineffable grace. He did not choose you because he knew you would choose him. He did not peek down the corridors of time to see how you might respond to the good news. No, no. He chose you because he knew. He knew in the deadness of your sin and mine that we would never choose him on our own. We would never seek after him. We would never turn toward him apart from his electing love. And notice what it is that governs God's choice as he did this, as he did this choosing, as he did this, as he did this selection of those who were summoned or, or pointed to before the foundation of the world that they might be holy and blameless before him. Notice what it is that governs God's decision, God's choice. Verse 5, in love he predestined us according to the purpose of his will. Right? The purpose of his will alone is what drives him to save you, Christian. Do you see that? The purpose of his will alone is what drives him. He's not driven by anything in the creature. He's not driven by anything in you to save you. There's nothing lovely in me that drew him toward me. It is his free and sovereign choice alone that has directed him. But do notice, friends, for all that, as true as it is, and it is true, Notice it is not an arbitrary or cold choice, an austere, aloof choice. Look at verse 5 again. In love he predestined us. Why did he, why did he choose to save you? Why did he choose to save me? Isn't that the great mystery? Why did he choose to save any of us? The great mystery, of course, is not why did God not choose to save everyone? Right? God is, is, is free to treat us as our sin deserves. Right? He's not required to save any. Right? The Lord God Almighty would be perfectly righteous to condemn us in our rebellion and sin. If, God, if in our sin God snuffed us out where we stood on that morning that we were born, he would be, his judgment would be just and he would be perfectly holy and righteous to leave us to perish. It is precisely and exactly what we deserve for our heinous sins against his holy majesty. Actually, the great mystery, in light of our heinous sins and wickedness against the holiness of his majesty, the great mystery is why he would choose to save absolutely any at all. Why would he choose to save even a single solitary one? Why would he choose any? And the answer that God the Holy Spirit gives to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul here is love. He chose you because he loved you, Christian. Before the worlds were made, Before the foundations of the cosmos were set, he was compelled to choose you because of infinite love towards you. And not because you were lovely. And please don't take that as an insult. It's not meant that way at all. I say this with all affection, you know that. It's not because you were lovely or I was lovely. No. He loved you because he loved you. Full stop. Isn't that precisely why we sing the words that we love? We're going to sing those words later on at the end of our service. While all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast, each of us cries with thankful tongue, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I a guest? Why 
Was I made to hear your voice and enter while there's room, while thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? Why was I made to feast at your table of grace? Why was I invited into the banquet room? Why was I acquitted in the court of holy judgment? Why was I then brought out of the judge's holy courtroom and brought to sit upon the Father's knee in the Almighty's own living room, as it were, brought to the family? Why? He loved you, Christian. Because he loved you, says the Apostle Paul. This salvation is accomplished in light of eternity. As he set it in motion, if we can put it in temporal language, in eternity past. But then notice how it bursts into history itself. Look with me at verse 7. Redemption through his blood, Paul says. Paul the Apostle brings us in verse 7 to a specific point in space-time history. He brings us to Golgotha. He brings us to stand at the base of the cross at Mount Calvary, beholding the God-man bear our sin in his body on the tree. The salvation was constructed, it was conceived in the mind of God and set into motion in eternity past. It was brought in as it burst into space-time history. But then Paul cast our vision even to the future. Look at verse 10. The plan for the fullness of time to restore and unite all things in Christ. It's coming one day. That day will come when sin will be forever gone and all things will be made new and this sin-wrecked creation and this sin-sick world will finally be mended and even Eden itself in all of its splendor and perfection and bliss, even Eden itself will be surpassed in the new heavens and new earth in which we shall one day dwell forever with the Lord. Remember how we said at the beginning that this passage is almost like a bird's eye view of the map of salvation, that, that, that view from 30,000 feet, that view from above of the landscape of salvation. This one long sentence that Paul gives us in Ephesians 1, it practically encapsulates the whole of the Christian life. As, as many, many commentators have pointed out, and you've probably noticed this yourself even as you're reading through it, election is here in verses 3, 4, and 5, and 6. Atonement is here, and justification is here in verse 7. Adoption is here in verse 5. Conversion is here in verse 14. Even glorification is here in verse 10. In other words, all we need from eternity through the present and on into the future, God has provided for us all that we need for eternity. God has provided for us, Paul is saying, in Christ. That's the whole landscape. It's the whole sweeping landscape of Emmanuel's country. Scotland is a, a beautiful place. And even the, lo- and the locals and even sometimes the visitors will sometimes jokingly call it God's country. And if you ever get the chance to go visit there and stand atop Arthur's seat or some other high mountain and look around, I think you'll see why. God's country. And as I stood atop that high mountain and looked around all of Edinburgh, I could see why. That's the kind of sensation that should occur to us as we read Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. As we take in the scope and the sweep of this countryside, we should look at it and say, this is God's country. And more than that, Christian brothers and sisters, this is your homeland. Emmanuel's land is your home. This is your country, brothers and sisters. And as you take it in with all of its beauty and all of its grandeur, oh, would you have your heart join in with the astonishing wonder of the Apostle Paul 
And as we leave here tonight, may these be the words on our lips and the song on our lips as we ponder in the immensity and the gloriousness of this reality. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be all the glory and praise, both now and forevermore. Praise God for his ministry, for the ministry of his word to us tonight. Would you join me in prayer, friends? Father, thank you for full, all-encompassing redemption. Help us to stay and to ponder this stunning scene. Having studied it, having considered it for these last few minutes together, would you seal this truth to our hearts that it might bowl us over in awe and adoration for the remainder of this week and even in the years to come this redemptive plan set before us. And would you use this truth that we've just studied to stir in our hearts praise and worship, not just of our lips, but indeed of our whole lives, that all of our lives might indeed be to the praise of his glorious grace. For indeed we do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.